Hi, my name is Brooke Rodriguez. I'm a Taino mother living in Matinecock territory. Mijuxis. My name is Desiree Kane. I'm a Miwok Two-Spirit. Osio. My name is Mia Beverly. I am from Sand Hill Band of Cherokee and Lenape, and welcome to First Foods. A program made by and for Indigenous people and our allies. Who are ready for a new day for old ways. First Fruits program is produced by Grinding Stone Collective in partnership with Green Feather Foundation and Her Many Voices Foundation, along with important support from community members like you. We have some protocols we'd like to go over with you. Land acknowledgement. We recognize, uphold, and respect Native nations and their life ways above all else as the ruling governance of Turtle Island and Abia Yala. Everyone attending this space must uphold the same. Native knowledge. Lessons learned are not for non-natives to monetize on or repackage as their own. Native knowledge systems belong to the cultural communities they come from and to the guest teachers in our programming. Foraging and harvesting. Always seek permission from tribal communities to forage and harvest. These medicines or foods may be seasonal or being left to replenish themselves. Also respect if the answer is no. Intertribal space. We are all from different nations and regions, so what may be odd or undesirable as food to you might be good to someone else. Respect that and don't insult or belittle. Respect tribal food, land, and medicine sovereignty. Remember that majority of foods are shared by many different tribes, but with different names. Do not try to claim exclusivity or copyright for your own people. It's okay to share the name as you know it. It is not okay to create dissent over a different name. No dissent over blood quantum or otherwise more Indianer than you fighting. Food sovereignty. First people have the rights to hunt, fish, forage, and harvest in their traditional territories. It is unacceptable to critique traditional or contemporary dietary styles as a non-native. Please put any questions that you have in the chat. The last 30 minutes of class, we often invite attendees to come on and interact with our instructors. Disclaimer, First Foods is for educational purposes only. Before using or ingesting any herb or plant for medicinal or culinary purposes, please consult a physician, medical herbalist, or suitable professional. everyone welcome to another week of first foods class uh, we are so happy that you have joined us i am joined here by mia beverly our co-hostess with the mostest 
Uh, she's standing in this week for Brooke Rodriguez, our program manager. Uh, and I wanted to just start out today. Um, we're doing our roundtable on food sovereignty. This is such an important topic for Indigenous people. We really work at First Foods to center and pay attention to things like food sovereignty because it's so central to our health and wellness, to our understandings of our body, to our understandings of how to interrelate to the planet. Um, so again, thank you. We hope that you stick around because today we have our giveaways, which we are giving away to uh, they are actually, I could probably go get it. I'll bring it back in just a little bit. They're cell phone chargers, lights, and emergency things for your vehicle if you need them, all in one, donated by Treeswater People, one of our wonderful uh, just supporting organizations who believe in our work. So stick around until the end. We're going to randomly pick two folks and give away this $90 gadget that charges your cell phone and if you're lost in the middle of the night because you foraged out too long and then you're walking back to your car this thing is really going to help you out so with that i will turn it over to mia she is going to welcome our two teachers who are returning if you did not see their classes please make sure that you go back on our facebook page to look at those so mia it's all you thanks says so you may recognize our teachers. We have today Britt Reed, who did a cooking demonstration just a couple weeks ago. And we have Megan um, here, who is a um, preserve, uh, can preserver. You may have seen her huckleberry jelly demonstration last week. So yeah, we have um, those two here today. So. Um, Either one of you can introduce yourself. Maybe we can start with Britt. Hello, I'm Britt Reed. I'm Lucia. 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 i am You want to go ahead, hi everybody <laughs> oh hi everybody this is megan baldy i am joining you guys from the Hoopa valley indian reservation which is the reservation that i'm from or the uh, people that i'm from and nice to meet everybody i'm excited to to talk to you all about food sovereignty okay so i'll start off with a question so food sovereignty is described as a food system in which people who produce, distribute, and consume food also control the mechanisms and policies of food production and distribution. This stands in contrast to the present corporate food regime in which corporations and market institutions dominate the global food system. Food sovereignty emphasizes local culturally appropriate, sustainable food availability. The system focuses on indigenous people who are specifically affected by issues of food production and distribution, partially due to changing climates 
and the shortage of traditional foods due to market pressures on supplies and distribution of food ways. These issues negatively impact the ability of indigenous populations to access traditional food sources and, and do contribute to a higher rate of disease. So that's the, the academic version of food sovereignty. But what I'd like, the question I'd like to ask is, what are some everyday ways that we would recognize food sovereignty just going about our, our lives? And we'll start with Megan. Um, let me grab something really quick. Sure. So these are my lapsaws. Um, basically they are um, hazel stick or um, they're willow stick. And this is, this is my very prized possession, lapsaw. Mm -hmm. And what they're for is they are for leaching acorns. And so I think that, you know, our, our people have sustained themselves since the beginning of time in Hoopa just because of our acorns and our salmon. And, you know, a lot of the elders say if those things go away, so does the Hoopa people. And so I think food sovereignty is just very simplistic in the fact that, you know, we just kind of getting back to what our ancestors did, you know, they were amazing scientists, you know, to think of something like this, to go collect these materials to make a basket where you then put a um, large amount of acorn flour into so that you can leach that flour. You know, I always think about like how it was that they thought to, to um, use this nut, you know, and I think about an ancestor because we do it all the time when we're in the woods that we, um, you know, we watch the animals, we watch the birds, we watch the deer and we watch, you know, what they're doing, the squirrels. And when you see an animal eating a certain food, it's more likely safe for you as well. So I can imagine that, you know, our ancestors watched acorns being eaten um, in the forest and decided to kind of think about how to start to um, utilize that net. Now I think about today, how this system, this, this food sovereignty system that was in place because we, we had a carbon date on one of our fire pits in one of our home houses and that carbon date was 10,000 plus years back. And so I think about like, how did, you know, the last 150 years that we've had contact here in Northern California, how did our food system change where we're, we have food insecurities? And I think a lot of it is definitely um, based on, you know, the, the Western mentality when it comes to food and that lack of connection and just kind of having your food picked up on a day-to-day -day basis. So when I think about food security and I ask people about that, I ask them like, do you have five days worth of food at home in case a natural disaster hit and, you know, your lights went out? Could you, could you survive with, without you know, lights and, and a road or access to the store. And, you know, some of them say, yeah, a lot of them say no. And then you think about what food sovereignty really means. And you think everybody in our community has to be that secure. And so that's what I think about food sovereignty. And I think going back to um, the way that our ancestors lived, but also, you know, working in this more modernized world, and I have a jar of acorns right here. 
Um, I did not can these acorns, but um, the guy that did, um, he's, he's an elder and you know, these are some good acorns. This will be, this is shelf sustainable for about two years. Um, you have to shake it up because the water and the fats will separate, but you know, it's, this could feed you for a couple days, if not, you know, for a whole day at least, and if not your whole family. So things like that, um, and getting back into understanding how to utilize um, our ancestral techniques when it came to processing food and then utilizing, you know, the contemporary techniques um, within your home. So that would be my take on it. Mm -hmm. What about you, Britt? What is the everyday way that food sovereignty can be seen in, in your life? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with Megan. Um, I mean, I think so often we think about food sovereignty on an individual basis, but realistically, um, like she was saying, and also kind of like the definition, it's like, this is always a community thing. It's not um, an individual thing, whether that's, you know, um, someone's going out and like, I have a, my partner has a brother-in-law, I should say, that goes out and, and hunts, you know, and like, though my partner would love to learn how to hunt, I, he doesn't have a she's not in the place right now too. And, um, and, you know, like I live with the elder, his mom too. And so, you know, being able to get that meat helps us too. Um, and it helps us not just um, like Valerie, I think of like what Valerie Seagrass says, where it's like these traditional foods feed not only our bodies, but our spirits. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so it helps in that way as well. Um, and it helps to continue that strength of community when we're able to rely on each other to be able to get that food. Cause not everybody has the same gifts, right? Like um, I can go out and gather nettle, you know, like that's my knowledge base. I have like a specific knowledge base that I'm of course always growing. Um, and I'm familiar with certain areas, but like, I don't know how to hunt. I don't know how to fish. I don't know how to clam. Um, and so like, but there are people in the community that do, right? So we all support each other, especially when we have our cultural events um, here or like back home um, in like Oklahoma or my tribe is like, you know, like they, they have their certain ways of supporting one another. Um, and so I think that I've been really heartened in these past several years of seeing this movement progress. I think, um, I think about when there wasn't as much um, representation, I guess, for lack of a better word, of people going out and gathering and doing these things. Um, and I've definitely seen like a rise and like people being inspired to start going back to the land. Like everyone says land back, but we don't really talk about like, what does it mean to go back to the land? Um, and I think that's a real question that we have to like ask ourselves. And what does that mean for us and our community? How do we do that? Um, and I think just like how people talk about how like we as Zeta folks, like spirituality is involved in all aspects of our life, like food in the ways that that works in our communities works in all aspects of our life, right? Like my interest outside of food is also in revitalizing some other aspects of like traditional culture that we have as like Choctaw people. And like, I'm recognizing um, that we have to also have a relationality with our plant relatives and with the animal relatives that we have in our homelands. And also like as a dispersed people, um, like what are our relationality with the lands that we're currently guests on? Um, and being able to like understand what those relationships and responsibilities and how those plants and animals work, both in like a cultural knowledge kind of way, but also um, 
if it is medicinal, all that kind of stuff, like how does that work? And then how does having those relationships move us forward into things like our art um, or things like our, um, our different, like our different things that we're bringing back, I guess is what I can say about that. Um, and I think that beyond just bringing it into our kitchen, beyond just trying to support each other as a community um, and doing like that redistribution of skills and knowledge around those different food types that we have, um, you know, being able to, like I said, the last time during my class, like if you don't have, um, if you aren't comfortable with traditional foods, like bringing those in like little by little and working with those until you become comfortable and can then continue on in that process and that it doesn't have to, you don't have to feel daunted and feel like you need to jump full in like baby steps, I feel like is always key so that you actually bring that into your life and into your home and into your community um, and with your relatives. So I think that's my long-winded answer on <laughs> uh, food sovereignty in everyday life. I'm gonna close this a little bit because that sun's coming in. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, thank you for both your answers, especially relating back to how food sovereignty strengthens your communities as well. And I definitely think it's important to understand that food sovereignty isn't just about food. It never really is. Um, but I'm just curious, um, because you both are so accomplished in your talents as both Britt being a chef and Megan being um, a can preserver, I'm wondering, um, how did you come to um, specialize in that or what inspired you to pursue um, so food sovereignty in that way? Yeah. You guys want me to go first? Um, so, you know, I come from a very large family. Like I have five brothers and sisters. So I have three brothers and two sisters. Unfortunately, we lost one of my sisters a while back and I take care of her two boys. So I also have a large family. We have six kids. And so food is a, is a very important part of my life. I just remember, you know, when I was young, I was about eight years old and my dad was working in the woods back in Hoopon. We lived out on the coast and, you know, I had a stepmother that wasn't very um, into being a mother to any of us. Um, and I don't know what her problems were, but that's uh, a different story for another day. I remember when my dad came home and we all ran up to him and we're like, we were hungry, dad. We're just really, really starving. And he said, well, she didn't feed you. And we said, no, she didn't. And I remember him taking me into the kitchen and giving me a potato and a pillar. And he's like, you know, you're going to learn how to cook and you're never going to allow your brothers and sisters to go hungry again. And, you know, that was placed on my shoulder as the oldest sister or the oldest daughter. I have an older brother, but, you know, in our in our culture, the oldest daughter really takes on a lot of the, the work. And so, you know, having looking back at those times and having uh, so much food insecurity as a kid. And then growing up and, you know, still being a cook and still taking care of a bunch of kids, you know, I not only take care of my nephews that live with me now, but I have previous pieces and nephews that have that have come in and out of our home and food was always super important to all of them, you know, and so you know, just being that person, that kid, like a lot of the kids that we see in our own, in my own community, you know, it just made me become passionate. And I think the most um, revealing moment to know I was exactly where I needed to be was I work as the community garden manager. 
and um, we had some some youth at the garden and they all had brown paper bags and we let them go pick any vegetable or whatever they wanted so they can take them home. It was part of their field trip. And I had a little girl, she tugged on my leg and she wanted me to see what was in her bag. And she said, do you see this food? She said, I'm going to take this food to my, to my mom and her boyfriend because there's nothing to eat at home. And that just like took me back to like me as a little kid, like feeling so responsible for the rest of the people in my house and the way that she felt responsible for her mother and and her mother's boyfriend. And, you know, just kind of put me into this, this food mode to, you know, that there, there are so many kids out there with that food insecurity, but if we can empower those kids, if we can empower the youth, um, like I was empowered, even though it doesn't seem like it by a potato, and a knife and learning how to cook for myself. Um, I think that, that we, can, uh, we can start to combat the amount of hunger out there that our kids face day to day. And so that's kind of why I became um, a master food preserver and why I'm in the position that I'm in is just because I know what it's like to be hungry. What inspired you? Uh, well, for me, my background is that I'm an adoptee. Um, I grew up in Dallas, Texas uh, with two fam- or two parents that are white. And um, I was really thankful to be one of the lucky adopted out people who uh, their, their um, adopted parents are pretty supportive. And it was something that was important for them to always have like me and my brother coming in the kitchen and helping out whether that's like grating some cheese or stirring a pot, um, trying to see like if maybe something needs to be added here or there to like a marinara sauce that my mom was cooking up. Um, and it was the nineties. So, you know, like I always, I was like the golden age of Nickelodeon and me and my brother always complained, being like, why can't we go in the living room and go eat? like all the other kids on our block and go watch like Nickelodeon and they'd be like, cause it's important that we eat together. This could be like our one time of the day that we get to see each other. So we're gonna sit here, we're gonna eat and everyone's gonna like stay here until everyone is done eating, which I annoy my brother with by eating slow. But, um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, like for me, like I've always been someone who's creative, someone who is always interested in, in making things and um, I didn't really realize how much of an impact that had on me. I mean, I think I had as a, um, a teenager and they're asking like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Like a passing thought of like, oh, I should be a chef. And then like that kind of went on to be like, I'm gonna go be a photographer. <laughs> but, um, you know, coming back to the community and um, coming to meet the people who would become like my hunka parents, um, you know, like they were from the time like I stepped into that camp kitchen um, and began helping out because I knew that was a skill set that I had. That was a way I could give back to the people. Um, I, you know, like I had conversations with them about the importance of traditional foods and going out and gathering. And, um, you know, like my my now mom would like talk about how, you know, she grew up gathering. And now um, sometimes when she goes out together, she's like the only person out there gathering and like how sad that makes her because it used to be that people would be out there and they'd be singing you know as they were gathering um and so like, I think that those conversations and those experiences growing up really stuck with me and so like I had said before when we began um when I got to I left art school came to Olympia Washington did the rest based program the reservation-based community determined program 
um, they talked a little bit about building healthy communities. And so like that started also my interest in like, how does, how did taking away our traditional foods impact us on, um, on a health level? And so I kind of continued that study while I was in, um, in grad school because I kind of got, I was able to heal a bit from being an adoptee and get to a place where I didn't feel like I needed to be an equal warrior. <laughs> um, and I really respect those people, but I realized that that was not the, the path for me. Um, and so I began looking at, again, like what is the, um, the intersections of like the chronic diseases in our health that we have and, and traditional foods and um, really became passionate about that and was really thankful for all the people who came together for that food sovereignty is tribal sovereignty group to share like what they were doing in their communities on all levels from hunting and gathering and gardening and farming and um, fishing all the way up to like, you know, being in nonprofits or being like uh, chefs focusing on their traditional cuisines in the kitchen. Um, and I realized through like my own studies too, like listening to like Winona Ladu talk about in her talks, how like, you know, she went off to, to academia and she'd go home and try and talk to her dad about, uh, you know, like all these things. He's like, I don't want to hear your philosophy unless you can grow corn. And for me, like what that said was that like, yeah, I'm in academia, but like, I need to go get my hands dirty. I need to find a way where like this actually translates into like helping the people and not just like sitting behind a computer doing research though. That's, that's also valid. But I just felt like, again, that like, wasn't necessarily the path for me. Um, and I've just been really thankful for like other signs in my life um, where, you know, I was essentially shown that like, this was my path even though I didn't realize it was gonna take over my entire life. <laughs> it's now taken over my entire life. And so now this is what I do. And in addition to being an IO Collective member um, and being able to, being so blessed to cook around the country and share like Choctaw foods and, um, you know, collaborate with other uh, chefs doing traditional foods, their traditional foods. Um, I'm really blessed to be able to work here at my partner's res um, at Talela with the diabetes program, being the, um, the food service coordinator. <laughs> for that. And so it's been so awesome to be able to work in gardens and um, help introduce folks to being on the land. Um, Cause I just had assumptions when I came to there that like, we're gonna do salmon, we're gonna do berries, it's gonna be dope. And then everyone's like, yeah, no, we're not ready for just doing all traditional foods. Like we need to do baby steps into this like general healthy foods we can get at the store. And then also like going out and gathering or like fishing or smoking or like whatever. Um, and it made me realize that like the academic stuff I had done doesn't necessarily line up with like what's happening on the ground in communities. And that like, again, like it's important to like slow down and do those baby steps so that it's not just something that people talk at the community about, but actually the community brings it into like their own lives and start um, engaging it in more um, within their own families and cultural events and stuff like that. So that's been kind of my journey. Mm -hmm. Thanks well, for thank you. Yeah, thank you for both of your stories. There's so much conversation right now about mutual aid. Um, is food sovereignty a form of mutual aid or is that something that folks from different communities are calling food sovereignty, but they don't have the word for it? There's, in this time of COVID, there's been tons of mutual aid programs and food distribution programs. And I wonder if food sovereignty is 
is like one of the first forms of mutual aid, right? I don't, I know that I can go and gather all of Ella's shells for regalia, but I don't know how to hunt. So I'm going to go trade. And that is in fact, a form of food sovereignty in its own way, because I'm securing my own ability to eat um, through sharing of resources and abilities. So I wonder, you know, how food sovereignty is, is viewed in your community versus maybe how other folks might encounter it in an urban environment. There's definitely a big difference. And I get a lot of questions about, you know, I live in the city, there's no food around me and have to gently push back and say, are there dandelions around you? Do you know how to identify a cherry tree when it's blossoming and then watch it? You know, those sorts of things. So I wonder beyond just grocery distribution is food sovereignty a form of mutual aid? What do you think? Um, I, I don't, I guess I'm just kind of struggling with the, the definition of mutual aid. Is it like, is it like food distribution programs and like free food programs, like food for people kind of stuff? Is that what you're, what, what they consider mutual? Cause I haven't heard actually that term in the food sovereignty realm. Well, that's what I'm wondering as well, because they seem to be like kin concepts, but they're not the same. Mutual aid seems to be, to me, used by perhaps more white people who are looking to redistribute resources and just give. No strings, just give. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if I could speak to that. Um, I didn't want to jump over you, Megan. Um, no, go for it. I mean, I think for me, like, I think when we're talking about that, it's getting conflated with, like, the concept of food security. Um, and food security and food sovereignty is different, right? Like if we want to go as like a mutual aid kind of thing, like our communities have been getting mutual aid since like before the civil war in the form of commodities, right? Um, that gave our, like our communities food, but we weren't the ones deciding what it was. And it also eventually led to like us getting many chronic diseases and sicknesses. Um, granted, I'll still go make some mac and cheese with that, <laughs> that block of cheese because that's gold. Um, but even still, like, I, I feel like when people are doing mutual aid and granted, I've also like had friends that live in New York City who are native, who are in the Indigenous Kinship Collective who are actively engaged with mutual aid too. So it's not just white people, um, mm -hmm. just to clarify that. But I think that, again, it comes back to like, what is food sovereignty? What is food security? And um, you know, sometimes, like I said, like, even if you're food secure, that doesn't mean you're sovereign. So that goes back to the fact that, like, we have to be the ones choosing what it is. Um, and I think, too, like, the concept of food sovereignty also means, um, you know, that we're able to do it unto ourselves, right? Like, we're not relying on somebody else to gift us something. Um, but I do see that, like, within food sovereignty, um, kind of like the example that you gave and how I talked a little bit before, um, you know, like not everybody has the same skill set, not everybody has the same knowledge. And what they say here to Laylup is that it's meant to be that way so that we rely on each other. Like if everyone had all the, like knew everything, they wouldn't need anybody else. Um, and so it's important that, you know, that everybody has different knowledges to go around so that we can like trade things like whether that's acorns for deer or, you know, like a basket for, you know, maybe some salmon or whatever. Um, that we have that skill and knowledge to go around. And I think that that 
is within the realm of food sovereignty, I guess, before I start repeating myself, <laughs> I'm going to pass it to Megan. <laughs> that was a very thoughtful I think, answer. I think that like any food that we can get to our communities is important and it's, it, it's worth, you know, whatever we need to do to get it. And, you know, with the FDIPRA program, I, I really enjoy that nowadays they have so many different things, like they even have fruit in there, but they actually are like, you know, like a lot of these, these initiatives, like the Food and Ag Initiative, and a lot of these um, policymakers are making sure that like, you know, this FDIPRA program, which is a trust responsibility. So the, the FDIPRA is, is worked into our treaties, right? And so you know, us being able to kind of dictate, we want this in there and we want that in there, you know, they're buying, they're buying salmon, they're buying bison and, you know, locally grown initiatives are in there and also tribal producer initiatives are in there. So I think that's beneficial. And I definitely think um, those programs are great, but um, I've actually um, worked with a, a food bank in Weaverville. There is a guy there, his name's Jeff, and um, he has you know, gets all these California food boxes and he was getting too many for the community that he was in. And so Weaverville is about an hour from us. And so I just would truck over there with my trailer and I'd go pick up, you know, three, four pallets of food and working with the school district and their outreach team, um, those food boxes became vital during this time. Um, and it seems like such a little thing, but the, the fact that he was um, open to giving us food boxes, you know, got food into a lot of areas that are very remote and that are very, very hard to get to. And so I think that, um, you know, mutual aid or just having just other, other communities supporting one another is important. And I think that, you know, that concept is something that we've held true in Native communities, you know, we have different river tribes that are up and down the river from us and we all depend on each other to this day to be able to, you know, fish together. We, we work together on our water rights. We work together on, on several different fronts, you know, and so I think that that's, it, it's definitely a positive, but any food that you can get into the hands of those that are in need is important, whether it's traditional, whether it's a food box. Yeah, and those blocks have been crucial too to like our community here. Like we have um, a group of Tulalip women that started Aunties in Action, which I love that name. <laughs> but they do a similar thing and bring it out to the gym. And so now every Friday folks can go out and get food where, um, you know, they may not have been able to before, you know, like if they have COVID or something, their relatives can deliver it, um, which has been really important here. So I definitely agree. <laughs> um, and I would say with the cities, because you had that question about the cities too. Um, I think it is important to be able to identify foods that are around because there's definitely a lot of things like the dandelions, like the, um, the plantains and some of those others that grow everywhere. Um, but I think as a, as a part of, you know, learning how to gather, like you also have to identify like which areas may or may not have toxicities in the soils um and sometimes in some urban places that's a little difficult though you can go and get people to sample the soil to make sure that it's good um, but that's something I just like want to throw out there too because um, I certainly wouldn't want to have someone that's gathering from an area that has like arsenic heavy uh soil but I, I think that um oh sorry did I break up 
Oh, no, I was just saying our pesticides, you know, somebody might spray pesticides on the side, you know, sidewalk trying to get rid of ants and just blast the dandelion. And there you go. Yeah, definitely. But I think, you know, like I I hope for a future where we'll be able to get some of those networks to the city of some of those traditional foods now that we do have people that are growing things, Um, you know, like whether that's Dynamite Hill Farm um, or Zimbabwean or Ramona Farms or, um, you know, some of the other people that are making some of those things more available, Um, Tonka Bar, for example, with the bison. Um, and be able to get some of those things into the cities too so that people can get access to those Um, or you know like people got folks that are both urban relatives and they got uh, you know relatives back on the rest so again like with that trading to um, reestablishing some of those networks to make sure that um, you know folks can really get some of those too if they're not able to go back home Um, but yeah that's a little bit of my answer for the urban folks out there That's a great question with great answers, especially appreciate like covering um, how, you know, as much as we want to take all the tips and tricks with us to where we are, like, there's always some complication with urban settings too. So, no, yeah, that's a good point too. Um, But I wanted to direct this question specifically um, to Britt. Um, because you mentioned this before, but I was wondering um, how is it working with iCollective and could you tell us more about your work with them and, you know, like how those like partnerships, um, you know, like help um, expand your work and reach there. Yeah, I mean, I've been really blessed to, to work with them. The iCollective for people that are unfamiliar is a collective of Indigenous knowledge keepers, seed keepers, artists, activists, and chefs and cooks. Um, And that's like from people that are like from Oaxaca up to Saskatchewan. Um, So all over the continent. And for me, working with them has been really great. Um, For myself, it's been really nice to be able to like, they have like such a, each person is either like working on, they're all working on it. But, you know, like they have such a, a knowledge base of like their own traditional foods and their own stories. And so when we are able to pre-COVID get together to cook together, you know, like I had no clue about any of the Southwestern foods, really, <laughs> um, just because like my focus was always on like the Southeast and then like on like some Lakota food because of my um, my uncle family or, you know, like up here, um, the Coast Salish region in the Northwest. Um, and so to learn about things like chiltepin and um just really any of them, the, the chula bud um, cactus and, uh, you know, like some of the, the blood sausages with the, with the sheep and stuff that some of our Navajo members uh, like doing. Um, it's been really great to expand my mind on like the possibilities of eating from the landscape um, and that relationality to um, a responsibility to those foods. Um, it's also really allowed me to um, earlier on in our collective, like we were doing a lot more like pop-ups, like we had a series in New York City um, where we were addressing the myth of Thanksgiving through doing a series of pop-up foods. And I think it's it's an interesting place to be when you're doing like a tasting meal of traditional foods, um, where like if you're selling tickets, like, like that's a lot of work 
um, I think Megan could attest, like when you're working with traditional foods to go out and gather that, to process that, uh, that's a ton of work. Um, and the time spent too, just to go out and get it and like watching the land and all that kind of stuff. And so sometimes the price ticket is unfortunately way above like what I could afford, um, way above certainly what our communities can afford. And oftentimes you're getting non-natives that um, will go to those events. I think one of the good things is that we've always tried to make sure that we've done a community event beforehand and make sure that the community first and foremost has access to those foods, um, which I think is important. Like our communities over non-communities, <laughs> non-native communities getting access to those foods before everybody else. Um, but we've been able to use those like high ticketed um, events to be able to be like, well, you paid a bunch of money to sit down and eat our food. So we're gonna take this time and you're gonna listen to our issues. You're going to listen to like what's going on in Indian country and you're going to hear about like these foods. It's not going to just be a pretty plate. Um, and so in that way, like using soft power, um, I think that it's been a powerful way to try and work towards having people in the audience become allies, become more knowledgeable about like what's going on in Indian country and like become aware of things that like we often talk about within Indian country and we're always aware of, but non-natives may not be paying attention to. Um, and so that's been really great. And it's been, that's been a lot of fun. Um, and I think lately with COVID, like our, our collective has kind of shifted because of course we can't travel all over the place anymore. Um, and again, we're all spread out. And so for us, it's been really a time of being able to do a lot of like in-house things, but more recently we've begun working on a, um, a multimedia cookbook. And so that's something that we're going to be beginning to release, I think, late summer sometime. Um, and it's going to be an ongoing project where it's uh, not only recipes, but we're like, like Carlos, for example, um, has written a really beautiful piece on like the yucca plant, um, on the chiltepin, um, some of these other things like talking about like, um, you know, how it used to be that people would use the yucca for a ton of things including making sandals and like each family would have their own like basket weaving style and that you could tell whose land you were on by the baskets like on that weaving style because you would see those imprints in the sand and I just love like the different connections that um, already is being brought together through that book and knowing too that we're going to have like webinars and stuff which is not like an advertisement it's just like what we're working on <laughs> um but so I've been, I feel like I've been very blessed to be um, in a really great group of people who are super knowledgeable and inspiring and have a deep um, knowledge of their system and not just like, how do you eat the foods, but like what the relationship is with those and the responsibilities, like I said before, and all the different uses for it, not just like eating the yucca plant, but things like that as well. We are pro advertisement here. If you're working on something, we're pro bragging. You know, you're doing some great work. Somebody else's cheerlead, please feel free. Um, that's really uh, uh, interesting. I did not know that you were using the opportunities pre-COVID to educate people on indigenous issues through food, which is just fantastic. I had the opportunity to be at Makamham, which is in Oakland. It's uh, an Ohlone two-spirit couple and... You know, it was one of those things that I wish for all Miwok, Ohlone, anybody who's around that area, because really having those foods on one plate and eating a meal that you know is in tune with that place 
And knowing that as an indigenous person, it's going to be in tune with your body even. You know, our bodies have learned over millennia to expect certain nutrients from our foods in our areas. It's a really fulfilling experience. So I appreciate that you all are doing that. And I can't wait to go to one as soon as I get the opportunity. Um, so my question is actually for Megan, which is, I encounter, so I, I go out and I talk about first foods, you know, I'm a co-host, want people to come and enjoy, but I encounter a lot of fear. People are afraid to go out. They don't want to do something wrong. They don't want to pick something that might be poison. There's this whole concept that anything that's not from the grocery store could kill you. Yeah. How do you um, answer to that if you do in a way that is both cautionary because you do need to know what it is you're doing, but is also encouraging that people can learn and, you know, not, not die. Yes. No, nobody wants to die when they're yeah. eating food. We want to live, right? Because you got to eat more food. Um, I guess I would say that, you know, basically going back to the, the, ancestral mentality and seeking advice from your elders like our elders are a wealth of, of knowledge they are a, a great resource to our communities um, when I wanted to learn how to make acorns I sought out the advice of elders um, when I wanted to learn about certain mushrooms and different things I sought out the advice um, from the elders and you know even now like my children they seek out the advice of me and their dad because when we go to gather especially like mushrooms is one of the ones that are kind of like very very scary because in our forest and, and many forests um around here there for every one that's edible there is a poisonous one that looks just like it and so like teaching our kids like how to identify the safe mushroom and how to identify the counterfeit mushroom you know, there's very, um, for tan oaks, um, there's a certain smell that they put off, but also like they're stringy. So like if you pull it apart, it will string up instead of like the counterfeit will just break. And so there's like signs that you can see that will, will show that. But definitely if you cannot seek from your elders, there's so many books out there that are made for um, different regions um, that are made um, from Native American perspective. One in our area is... Um, I believe it's oh, Bertha Peters is one of the ones in, that helped create it. And I have it. Um, can you give me a second and I'll go grab a copy of that book so you guys can see it? Sure. Well, so while we're waiting, I'll just take a quick opportunity to let the class know what's coming up for next month if you're interested which is going to be uh, discussions on matrilineal food culture. So the first we're doing matriarch foods that feed motherhood. The week after that, we'll have grandmother foods that feed elders. After that will be ancestor foods oh, that honor our relatives. So we'll have a roundtable discussion on matrilineal food culture and grandmother recipes next month and we hope you will join us. Uh, Megan, we were just talking while we were waiting for you to grab your book. So the um, book is called After the First Full Moon in April. It's by Josephine Peters and then Beverly Ortiz helped her wrote it, write it. But this one has like so much 
on plants that are local and then just like the the purpose behind them so now you can get this one on amazon and it's definitely for the northern california region so things like that if you're unsure of trying to seek out those um educational materials that are put together josephine was an awesome awesome elder and she's taught so many things about you know the traditional foods but the medicinal uses of different plants and and roots in our in our community and so things like that i would i would suggest to do mm -hmm. okay well i have another question i'm going to put megan back on the spot again but you briefly mentioned to um the food sovereignty programs are often included in treaties. And I was hoping you'd talk more about that um, in relation to your tribe and um, whether how effective they've been or not. So, um, and maybe your how your work may um, supplement that. Yeah, so our treaty was formed in 1868 here in the, and that's when the Valley Indian Reservation was formed. And, you know, it had the food and, and education and healthcare initiatives are put into it, right? The, the, the federal government would work with Indian communities to do that. But interesting reason um, locally why, our, why we had to make a treaty was that um, it, we didn't have contact to around 1849, 1850 in that area. And it was a, it was a gold rush era. And during that time, prospectors came to came through Hoopa, and they found um, they actually were, uh, were in contact first with the Yurok tribe or Yurok people, and um, they asked the Yuroks like, "What is the the neighboring tribes down below you, and um, or up the river from you?" And they said they are the Hoopas, and so I believe that's upriver neighbors. And so that's um, when we first had contact. But during that time, as the gold rush continued in Northern California, a lot of homesteaders came to our valley. And I believe at one time we had like 20 homesteaders that were agricultural homesteads and then 40 residential. And so those 20 that were here were here to support the prospectors when they were coming through, like support them with food, right? And so they began to farm and, and then a census was done, the United States census um, was done in the area. And so we have this old document that shows the sense of census during that time. But um, what had happened was that the, um, it was around 1860, the homesteaders wrote to the federal government said that they were afraid of the Hoopa people and asked to send aid. And so that's when they established Fort Gaston here in, in Hoopa. And they had um, actually Ulysses S. Grant come through Fort Gaston and stay. But the, the soldiers came in and um, basically there was a, a, a fight between the Indian people and the soldiers that happened over them. Um, I think the story goes like they raped a woman or they were trying to rape a woman, something in that matter. And then one of the soldiers were killed. And so it started the, the wars in our area. And so, um, you know, they tried to get the Indian people to to actually come down from the hills because we were able to go up in the hills and outstand anything that they could do. 
But one cool story is um, they actually came with flour and bags and they put it out to entice the people to come down. And that was part of their like understanding. I was like, oh, well, you got to feed them somehow, right? And so they bring this flour in these sacks and they set them out. And um, I read in one of the stories that um, when the soldiers came back to where they put the flour, they actually found the flour all dumped to the ground and then the sacks were gone because the people, my ancestors during that time found more uh, value in the utility of that bag than the flour. And so several things had happened in between here and there, but I have a really awesome picture. Well, it's not a really awesome picture, but it's just a picture after uh, our treaties were established of five Hoopa women sitting outside Port Gaston with their burden baskets waiting either for food rations or either they were prisoners, but just to see, you know, that our people worked really hard to withstand, withstand you know, the United States government. And so when the treaty was established, there's actually the homesteaders and stuff that were here, they actually paid them $63,000 to move out and, and so that they can get, and the reservation was established. But, you know, all these food things were put into um, our treaty because they felt that we had to have a better diet with white flour or Western flour um, as opposed to what we were really eating on. So I don't know if that made sense. Yeah, no, that that's a great story. Um, comes with like that history too. Um, I didn't know that um, it wasn't until like 1849 that we made contact. So that's really fascinating. Like just to see how contact came in waves and also to, I mean, to run it in gold into the gold rush wave that also has to be intense. But no, thank you for that. Um, now, just following up with another question, this is directed to both of you, but um, I was wondering how your work may also um, work in context of kind of building a smaller um, economy that's more localized. Like for instance, I know Megan, you barter your um, preserved foods. So um, either one of you can answer to that maybe and talk more about how you could be potentially building like a agroeconomy or just more localized economy within your community. Great, do you wanna go first? <laughs> I was gonna see if you wanted to go first. <laughs> I can go first. So okay. um, just like a local food economy is super important, but I think like when it comes to like tribes in general, like the, the tribal government had, you know, was, was basically formed in the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934 and, and kind of flipped upside down the concept of how we actually lived our lives and, you know, had a more Western governmental mentality that is definitely still not working for Indian people. But I think like, you know, having that mentality go back to like locally produced, locally grown, you know, locally gathered is super important to come back into that full flourishing of sovereignty that we were used to. Um, so before, you know, before contact, that was how we lived our lives. We bartered or, you know, we had for us, we had ishpuk, they call it, or dentalium, um, which is a uh, shell that was traded. And actually the men would have tattoos on their arm 
that would show like the length and that's how you would know like the amount that um those that ishpuk was worth is by the length of that dentalium and so um having that mentality come back and and kind of flipping back to the the regular way will bring us back into balance i know that we can't go all the way back to how it was but i know that there are steps that we can take it and creating native economies is super important for the the uh, next generations and for the survival of Indian people. We have to be able to become more reliant on our self-sufficiency as opposed to the federal government. And it's gonna take a lot of work, but food, food is one of those priorities that should be at the top because if we can feed ourselves and have an ability to feed everybody, especially our most vulnerable, our elders and our children, you know, we'll, we will get to that spot. So I think it's super important. I don't know if y'all caught it, but I just wanted to show y'all because I have it on hand because I'm over here beating. This is what dentillion looks like. And these are like some smaller ones. They're getting cool. more and more expensive by the day. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're like, they're like gold too. Yeah, I'm like, I got my, my dentillion here. I'm like, nobody's getting this but family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Thomas Jeffries, I think his name was uh, from Hoopa. I remember him showing me too, like the line now that's just like, just there now like there he's talking about how like they're used they used to tattoo that and now it's just like on hoopa people i thought that was pretty cool <laughs> yeah i know a few guys that have that um but yeah thomas joseph yeah <laughs> that dude's funny <laughs> yeah he is um he's a great one to talk to too by the way about uh environmental stuff and food um but uh I feel like in my mind, um, when you talk about like a, a microeconomy, um, it struggles a little bit because, you know, I, I feel like we're taught to really take care of one another and, um, and a part of taking care of one another, like I was saying before, is being able to provide, like if someone went out clamming, like you, come by, you drop off clams. Um, if someone went out hunting, you give some of that meat to elders or like, you know, family members, friends, whatever. If you go out gathering, you give some of that away. Um, or you save that for a time where like the community is gathering and, um, you know, someone has a giveaway or something like that. Um, or they put those foods on the table for people to be able to eat and then take home. Um, I think in an ideal kind of situation we kind of continue that I mean I certainly see that here at Talalup um I know people still take care of each other that way um back in Oklahoma as well um and even in the urban settings like I like my friend will come up here from Seattle uh and like I'll make sure to give her like you know like some jam or like some nettles or like elk or like whatever it is I have on hand sometimes I feel kind of like a like a pokeney like a grandma <laughs> I'm like, here's all your food. Love you. Bye. <laughs> um, so I feel like in that kind of sense, I hope that that kind of teaching never goes away. And I feel like that's one of those that like, it's not in line with capitalism, but we still got to pay bills. <laughs> and so um, for me, I see like the role, like, even though like, uh, you know, like the tribal government's a little bit different than sometimes people on the ground. I do see it like using that, um, governmental institutional kind of setup to support people being able to work in the traditional food systems 
um, whether that's like like here in Tulalip, like there's a good number of people who are like, you know, their main thing outside of selling fireworks is like going out and fishing. Like those salmon runs come in and they're just like, they're fishing, they're gonna go with clam, they're gonna get gooey duck, um, you know, whatever that is, like that's like their main way of providing for their family, keeping that relationship. Cause like they say here um, for a lot of Coast Salish communities, like they're people of the salmon. Um, and here there's a little bit different story, but I mean, that's kind of like a common theme among the Coast Salish people up here. Um, you know, like, so like, that's, that's the main way to earn money and the main way to take care of the people and provide, like, make sure like the, um, the various cultural things that they have here continue cultural and spiritual things. Um, but if the, if the salmon went away, like, for example, like we have an issue here in the Northwest and probably same in California, like the salmon's kind of threatened. Um, and, you know, in both places we've had to fight, um, for the right to fish and to keep those of the salmon wars that had happened, whether that was like down in um, Squally and Muckleshoot and throughout here, whether that was down in Klamath and Hoopa and other places. Um, and I know the Anishinaabe out um, in the Great Lakes also had that same struggle, but um, you know, like if, if the salmon go away here, like I don't, I don't really know what's gonna happen <laughs> to be honest. Like uh, there's a lot of, of cultural things that um, may not be able to happen. And I think the people in the land will suffer for it if the salmon um, go away, even if it's just one of them, like the coho, we're really struggling with medicine down in season. And so that was something that, you know, the, the tribes had to make a decision, like, you know, this is the way um, our people survive both financially and also um, culturally, but we have to, to take a backseat right now to make sure that these salmon survive. Um, so I think there's like a, a balance of the, that capitalistic way of engaging in a local food economy and then also like our, our traditional ways. And But I do think that it's important for the tribes to go after grants, to go after other things, to make sure that you can have things like gardens and like maybe tr like tribal members can go. And if they're interested in becoming a master gardener, like they can go and do that and then use that way to provide for the people um, and get that paycheck so they can provide for their family and the community. Um, and there's definitely like more access, I think, to, to funding like that, that tribes can get to ensure those ways um, than maybe sometimes the, the local people on the ground or um, or being able, like I said, to, to get some of those entrepreneurship uh, grants for people to do things like get farms and to, if they're in a place where like they traditionally grow certain things um, to do that. But I think to answer your question, <laughs> I feel like I always do long roundabout. <laughs> answers um here uh it's mostly just you know people gifting stuff or trading things or or that kind of way but increasingly um you know i do hope that the tribes are working and i say tribes because Toledo is comprised of like seven different tribes but i hope that the tribes are are working towards um really using some of the land that they have um in their possession to actually start a farm and make sure that tribal members are able to get that training and be able to work there so that they can, um, you know, engage in like a micro economy kind of situation of getting a paycheck to work on the land and grow those foods and then make sure that the tribal members are able to get more fresh foods um, here on the res than having to go into the border town um, of Marysville to go and get food. So I don't know if that answers it or, or not, but like I said, like, I feel like those two kind of concepts kind of like war in my mind. And I'm like, oh, like, how does that work together? <laughs> 
because <laughs> we have these separate realities that are like one reality, but you know, it's, it's always conflicting. I feel like it's always been kind of conflicting. No, yeah, thank you for answering the question while also addressing the fact that like, as much as we want to not put a value on what we produce and what we value and prefer to barter, but also acknowledging like the reality of um, also, you know, capitalism, we live in it, like we have to operate and still like be able to survive. So it's important to keep that perspective as, uh, as well. But um, there's time for a question and answer from the audience. So we're definitely opening up to um, anyone who wants to ask a question. I already see one from <laughs> Juana Beverly. Um, Any relation? That's your mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> funny. I'm gonna put her on the spot, maybe. Mom, can you uh, uh, unmute and yeah. See yo. <laughs> I was so curious about the acorn. <laughs> oh, can and you what, question? Yeah, I put, well, I didn't say that on, I was asking what other foods that Megan preserves, but also the acorn I was so interested in as well. Oh, cool. Um, so if you get a chance, I have a, a Facebook page called Cooking Healthy in Indian Country. And I actually work with another person here locally on like showcasing like how to process acorns. But really what we do is um, we're surrounded by a lot of tiny oak acorns. So we go and gather them pretty much every fall. Um, we, we have certain times that we get